This episode is made possible by our supporters on Patreon, who gain access to special events, extra content, Q&A sessions, and more. You can join the community at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. Now here's the episode. So now in this podcast, we talk a lot about evangelicalism. We talk a lot about white Protestantism and the, the lack therein. And today's going to be another one of those. And as I was reflecting, I think you just can't talk about that enough and you can't unfold and unflesh that enough. This is where people like us are in the midst of a transformation where we are recognizing that the faith we've been given doesn't hold its weight as much as we had hoped. And so we're in the course right now. We're in the, on this journey of unpacking and unlearning and taking things away in a way that actually can build something on top of a strong, good, appropriate foundation. And so today we have a person I call a friend who wrote a book called Born Again and Again. Her name is Megan K. Westra. And this book is one of those must-reads, I think. It's a book about salvation but not in the way you think it might be. She looks at salvation in a deeper, more profound, more rich, complex, and relationally rooted way than you might imagine. So I'm excited for it. And uh, before we before we do that, what do we? What treat do you have for us here today, Kyle? Yeah, so I, I'm so excited. We are recording this in person for the first time in I don't know how many months. Last summer, I think, was the last time we too were many. Together. Cheers. So cheers. Yeah, here cheers. we are. And that's an actual clink. Um, So because of that, I've been sitting on all this beer that I can't drink by myself because it all comes in bomber sizes. And I've been saving a bunch of stuff for the podcast. So uh, first time we're back to beer in a long time. So what I've got for us here is something called Shelter in Case, which I think is hilarious. Because they uh, put it out during the pandemic. So this was bottled in March of last year, March 18th. Uh, and this is from 1840 Brewing Company in Milwaukee. They're down in Bayview. One of the best breweries in the area, in the state, in my opinion. Uh, their motto is drink slow beer. They they do a lot of uh, traditional styles and barrel-aged stuff. So this is a wine barrel-aged saison, uh, naturally fermented, I believe, and uh, bottle conditioned as well. And it's been sitting in my beer fridge for like a year. Wow. So... Um, Let's see what you think about this. I think it aged beautifully. Yeah, I mean, you a saison. When I when I think of a good saison, it makes my mouth water. Mm-hmm. And when you the instant you opened that bottle and the steam rose up, mm-hmm. my mouth started watering, watering just smelling it. Yeah, I love it. This is my favorite style. It's almost impossible mm-hmm. for me to beer, pick a beer style, but this is it. I think the best beer comes with corks in it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, it's just fantastic. The, the flavors you get in a barrel-aged saison are just far more complex than anything else. The yeast does some amazing stuff in there. <laughs> Turns out being corked in a bottle since uh, March of 2020 <laughs> would do well. Makes me, <laughs> yeah. makes me wish I could have hit out in a bottle that long. Mm. Sounds like our culture. It's so aromatic. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It's got such major tartness. Mm-hmm. In ways that, like, it reminds you of eating that great tart berries, those great yeah. tart fruit, yeah, yeah. that just, like, you, you love it, but it almost feels like punishment at the same time. It's, like, <laughs> it's like makes your mouth water, but then it dries out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it does have a, a drying finish, but I don't mind it at all. No, but I mean, a Saison is like a pleasant summer beer mm-hmm. that also punches you in the mouth at the same time. <laughs> yeah. These yeah. are very unscientific uh, and unbeer <laughs> geeky like descriptors. Grapefruit multiplied by grapefruit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but the dry finish, I wonder if that's from the, because it's aged in wine barrels, mm-hmm. it, it finishes like a wine. It's like yeah. Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't say what kind of wine they used, unfortunately, but definitely has a similar. It have to be a white wine, right? I no idea. I imagine. Yeah, this is the kind of beer that I really enjoy. I would enjoy it more on a like a warm summer day, but I can't yeah. enjoy more than like a a four ounce pour. So if we drank it like three days ago, it would have been perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. I should explain. We had a heat wave three days ago. And yeah, now it's back, back to, to the, 50s. the normal fifties that it stays for eight months out of the year. Yeah. Well, it's fun. It's, it's great. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Well Cheers. done, 1840. If you want to send me more bottles, I will be happy to rate and review them. <laughs> Cheers to beer. Cheers. Well, welcome everyone to uh, Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. Uh, we're joined t- today by Megan Westra, who has spent her time doing a lot of different things. She was a pastor for a long time. Uh, she's, uh, what, what, what would you consider yourself now? What's your role now? Um, I'm a hospice a, chaplain uh, by profession. And hospice chaplain. I guess, like, itinerant writer of sorts. <laughs> yeah. And and she's here to discuss with us her book published last year, which has a title that I love, Born Again and Again. I immediately fell in love with the book when I saw the title because I had that exact experience <laughs> as, as a nine-year-old, so I know exactly what you're talking about there. Uh, and this book covers a lot of different things, so uh, this should be a really fun chat. Yeah. Megan, I wonder... With the title of the book, have you gotten any emails from angry people who feel baited and switched that bought it because they thought it was going to be this fundamentalist born-again book, and then it wasn't? Uh, you know, I have gotten zero angry emails, which honestly surprised me with some of the content in this book and the fact that I'm a woman trying to do anything in Christian spaces. Uh, but I haven't really gotten any any bad email, which maybe just means that I have isolated myself from all the fundamentalists enough that they aren't even checking up yep. on my work anymore. But uh, I'm, either way, I'm grateful that there's not angry email. Good, good. So for our listeners, Megan, who don't know about your book or may not have read it, Born Again and Again, can you just tell us your background? Because you're really personal in your book and you get really down to go through a lot of your history in the church and in your family in the South. Can you just bring us through and bring our listeners into that world a little bit? Sure. So I often will tell people that I am like the stereotype. If you want to think of a Southern white, evangelical, especially coming out of the Trump era, um, I check all those boxes. Um, I grew up primarily in the Southern Baptist Church. Um, I attended a Baptist college. I was homeschooled for the entirety of my elementary, middle, and high school education. I literally grew up down a holler and across a creek. Uh, You know, all these things that, like, if you just want to create a little stereotype in your head— I I check all those boxes. And so what I do in the book is I kind of take people through not just here are my thoughts about life and the world and theology and God and things like that, but also kind of how did I come to thinking about things in that way? Because one of the things I've noticed over the years, because I'm not still a Southern Baptist living down a holler uh, and homeschooling myself or my child, uh, I do none of those things. Uh, And so... One of the questions I've been asked over the years is like, 
how did you get here? Because mm-hmm. I don't make a lot of sense on paper. Um, you don't meet a lot of former fundamentalist Southern Baptist women who became pastors um, and pastors in the, in the city for, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have gotten a lot of questions over the years of like, how, how did that happen? <laughs> like, no offense, but how did that happen? And so I try to kind of trace that, not just to answer curious minds, but also because I think there are a lot of people in that space uh, and increasingly more from the time when I started writing the book to the time that it you know, released and, and now uh, people who are starting to look at their faith tradition, uh, the way that they've always kind of thought about things, and it doesn't make it sense anymore. And so I really wanted to give people like the handholds and footholds, like when you're rock climbing, uh, not to get all the way to the top, but something to push off of and to, to, keep, to keep going, to keep yep. going. Because uh, yep. I think often when we start questioning things, it's we get stuck really easily. Um, yep. Yeah, I think so many uh, listeners who read this book are going to resonate so deeply with your story. I mean, whether you're from the South or not, I think it's probably a little exaggerated when you are from the South and up the creek and down the Just holler or whatever Just turn the volume up a little. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that story is such a consistent and emerging story of being born and raised and rooted in a strong evangelical church and just it didn't hold up. And in your case, the beautiful thing is you didn't give up on it. You could have. Instead, you kind of doubled down and lived into it in an extreme way that was really beautifully detailed in the book. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest character traits of my entire life, which didn't square very well with being like the gentle, quiet woman that I was supposed to be in evangelical circles, was I'm really stubborn. Um, And so it it kind of became this like, I I can't let this go. Like, I have no choice but to double down and figure this out. And it's either going to be all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I have to figure it out. Yeah. So in chapter one, Megan, let me just jump right into it. Um, I'm looking at the book right now, Born Again and Again, and then it's got saved, saved, saved. So there's obviously <laughs> your your graphic designer was trying to do something with the theme and salvation is all over it, um, particularly as you get, get right into it. And I, you got me in chapter one when you talk about how you grew up thinking salvation is about how it's all about basically saving people from hell and making sure that within six weeks or less, you get them to have that fire insurance, basically. And that's basically all the whole thing is about. To now, you say, you describe salvation as, and I'm quoting you, as a people to which I belong and a practice to which I submit. Salvation is a people to which I belong and a practice to which I submit. Now, I don't know if many soteriologists would, you know, uh, I think actually there's probably plenty of soteriologists who would say that actually gets to the point of it more than this thing that we've created to be in the church. But we don't think about salvation as a people to which we belong and a practice and a way to which we submit. Describe in more words this new way of what you're seeing salvation being and how you got there. Yeah, so this really started to come together for me when I went back to seminary. Um, I had been in ministry for, gosh, like seven years before I went to seminary, which I like highly encourage, like, because then you kind of know as you're in all these lectures, you're like, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> that's mm-hmm, not going to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also like, oh, that's what good news sounds like, right? Because you're you're having to put it into practice in real time. And when we were going through uh, soteriology in my theology classes, 
I was so struck. And I'm like reading these textbooks. You know, I'm reading, I'm reading Torrance, and I'm reading uh, a lot of the things I drew on from the book was from uh, John Sabrino, who's a Catholic theologian. And I'm reading all these different things, and I'm like weeping into these theology textbooks because I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just so beautiful, and mm-hmm. this this is good news. It's actually good news, and. As we're discussing it in my classes and with my classmates, so many of them are coming to the same conclusions that I am, where just like the people in our congregations don't know this. Mm-hmm. They don't know that this is what salvation can be. And and kind of to what you were just saying, Randy, like that's not the way that most of us would think of salvation as a as a people and as a practice. And so I think the more that we can get past this idea of like checkbox Jesus, the better. Um, you know, really, we have had that understanding of salvation for a very short amount of time in the large scope of Christian history. And so the idea that that would become not just the predominant view, but like the only way to think about it for mm-hmm. so many people is just asinine and really arrogant, mm-hmm. um, that we would ignore the entire scope of Christian history and theology and say like, well, this is this is it. Billy Graham fixed it. He arrived. And like, that's what salvation means now. And so uh, I think that expanding it, right, not diminishing it, right, that it's salvation is it is a choice. It is a thing that we that we opt into. And I talk in the book about how it's kind of like, you know, when your friend comes and knocks on the door, not when COVID is happening, and says like, hey, will you come play outside? And you like, you have to say like, come in. Right. Like I grew up in the era of like come home when the when the street lights come on or we didn't have street lights down the holler. So it was like come in when the sun goes down. Uh, <laughs> but you ha- you you opt into that. You have to run out the door. Um, but I think so often we think about salvation as like, well, I ran out the door and now I'm just sitting here on my porch steps. I made it. And it's like, well, n- n- no, <laughs> you're missing everything. Um and so for me, that has looked like constantly being almost in process of like every day, how am I learning to love God and my neighbor and myself more and more holistically uh, every day? How am I being invited into that, that cycle of death and resurrection to different parts of myself or to uh, systems that I participate in? Uh, my own imagination of what's possible. Uh, And it's much more complicated than answering if I've checked a box or not, but it's also so much more beautiful and and good. That picture of being invited in, stepping into the foyer, and then living your life there, it's so barren, it's so so, uh, wasted, and that's such such a brilliant picture for thinking about our salvation and being what it means to be saved, what it means to um, live into this faith that we're we're born into. I love it. I love that. And the way you flesh that out in the book is really, really brilliant. That belonging to a people in particular that you open yourself up to is something that's so lost in the church. I want to talk about that more, but Kyle, I think you have a question. Yeah. So you draw attention at several points in the book to what I think you identify as the main problem with the sort of Billy Graham evangelical view of salvation, right? And you label it consumerism, and then you talk about it in a lot, from a lot of different angles. And you contrast consumerism with the better thing, which is connection. Uh, so can you flesh that out a little bit for us? What do you mean by those two terms? 
why do you think that's the way that we should think about what salvation could be? Yeah, so I first came across this framework when I was reading a book by Dr. Carrie Day, uh, who's a womanist scholar. Um, the book is Religious Resistance to Neoliberalism. Very good, very dense. Uh, and, and she starts to pull this this thread, too, of saying, like, okay, but the, the consumer aspect of culture, the, the way that we have learned that we are fundamentally... Uh, at the end of the day, and first and foremost, we are consumers, right? Like the, my life is I'm a consumer. Um, and you exist only in terms of what I can get from you. Um, so we have to reimagine that. We have to remake that within ourselves if we're going to move into a way of thinking that uh, I, I think is more based in like the, the kingdom of God um, and what Jesus is calling us to uh, but the church has done a lot to just reinforce that kind of thinking. Uh, Graham certainly wasn't the first one to start that, but he made it real popular. Uh, and so this idea that, like, even the language we use, right, that, oh, have you gotten saved? Like, are you, you know, did you mm-hmm. get saved? Like, it's something that we can go to the store and then put on our shelf. And many of us treat our salvation as though that's what it is. It's a trinket that we t- tuck up there, and people notice it when they come over, and they say, oh, tell me about that thing. And we're like... Well, let me tell you that story. But it doesn't move us in any meaningful Mm. way. Uh, You know, you can see really clear examples of this, particularly when you look at the way that uh, gender has been played out in the church, the ways that uh, particularly like women and children um, are treated almost as if they are consumer goods um, to prop up uh, the biblical men in their lives. But we've done that with so many things. We do it with where we attend church as Christians. Uh, you know, how many times have pastors heard like, well, I'm just not being fed. I'm just not getting what I need here. And there is room for valid critique of like what a church is doing. That's usually not one of them. Mm-hmm. And, and so to say like, because I am not feeling good right? Because I am not feeling as though my consumer needs are met. My dopamine response isn't being triggered in this moment. Then clearly this is not where God wants me. Does not square with scripture at all. Uh, Not to go like biblical literalist on us, but that doesn't square with scripture at all. And so this idea that like God exists and salvation exists and the other people who are claiming to follow Christ exist for the purpose of me feeling good about myself is the subtext of a lot of our interactions within the church and in a lot of Christian circles. We would never explicitly say that. But if you look at like, where are there fissures in relationship? What are the things that are informing the choices for what we do and don't do? That's humming underneath the surface of a lot of things. We, like you alluded to, Megan, I mean, we in the church are by and large responsible for it. And by, by we in the church, I mean, we church leaders yes. are by and large responsible for that consumeristic culture that we have, particularly in the white American church, white American evangelical church. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't think I know many pastors. I know some, but I don't know many pastors who really love that dynamic, who thinks mm-hmm. it, who think it's healthy, but they know that that's what they've created and that's how they pay the bills. That's how they pay the mortgage. That's how they keep a salary. And that's how they feel validated, to be honest with you, is butts in the seats, right? And so we just keep going around in this hamster wheel, even though we mostly know it's just not right and we'd rather have something more biblical. It's kind of the monster we've created. It's 
it's a huge, huge bummer. And I'm wondering what it's going to take for that to kind of, for that, to, for that model to break. Because it's breaking as we speak, right? What are your thoughts on that, Megan? Uh, I mean, I feel like I could pontificate on that all day long, especially since I don't lead a church anymore. <laughs> so I yep, have yep. clearly all the answers now, kind of like when you don't have kids yet and you're like, well, this is how you parent. <laughs> um, so I, I think that one of the challenges is that we need to redefine what leadership is. And we need to find ways of quantifying good leadership in ways that aren't tied to finances or butts in the seats. Um, that sometimes good leadership looks like standing up and saying, this is breaking as we speak, so you know what? We're gonna, we're just going to smash it right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to walk you through what it looks like to pick up the pieces that we're going to preserve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, What we're going to do right here is we're going to break this And then we're going to look really closely at all the shards of glass and see which ones we can meld together to make a new window um, with, you know, beautiful, you know, art in it that will, you know, just all the things. Right. And so I think that you need that. But again, there's this, this aspect of like the monster we've created. And if you're in a denominational system, then you're being accountable further up. Um, to the people who are saying, no, you can't break that. Like, we need all of these metrics from you. Um, and if you're not, then uh, then that comes with its own sense of precarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that, that there is a responsibility for people who are leading the church to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that right now, uh, particularly right now, we see so clearly what happens when leaders uh, massage the edges of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it really is one of the most revolutionary acts to just tell the truth and to stay with people through it. Yep. It's good. I feel like when people start taking part or coming to our church, I can tell the ones who are going to stick and the ones who aren't. And the ones who aren't are usually the ones who use the consumeristic words to Mm -hmm. tell you why they're here. You know, oh, I love the preaching. Oh, so good. I'm like, okay, the worship's amazing. Love it. Oh, makes my heart sing. I know that's not going to last, right? The ones who last usually are the ones who are like, man, this feels like family. Wow. I've never felt like known in a church so long. Those are the ones that are going to stick. The ones who stay because of the preaching or the worship, they're going to wind up being disappointed in two years when my preaching style changes or, you know, our worship leader gets onto a different group of songs that may or may not like. It's amazing how predictable it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So in chapter two of your book, Megan, you lo- use this term that I was talking with my wife about. I loved it. And it's so simple. I wish I have, I, I, I wish I could t- state claim to that and say that I created it. But this idea of selective liberation that you say pretty much you start in chapter two and then you go throughout the book talking about how we in the church, I mean, really it's Americans, but let's just talk about the church here, the white American evangelical church. Um, this idea of selective liberation, that we think that we're all about salvation and freedom and liberation for all people. Who would say no to that, right? The reality is, is that that's just not the way it plays out, and that's not what we fight for as a people. That's not what we stand for. And when you do talk about full and total and complete liberation for all people, that gets pretty rough. I mean, we just had a summer where we saw what happens when you actually advocate for that. So can you take us into this this really this idea that you created with this selective liberation concept. Yeah, well, I 
I first have to acknowledge that that is a concept that, I don't know if the exact term comes through, but probably at some point, but definitely the concept comes from a lot of womanist theologians, um, which are black women um, who are doing theology. Uh, and so this idea that like none of us are free until all of us are free, uh, which I think is Audre Lorde, um, who is not a theologian, but is is worthwhile <laughs> to read in her own we can, right. We can dispute but, that. I mean, I mean I'm okay putting her there. I don't know if she's okay putting herself there. I want to respect yeah, she, that. Yeah, she might not want to Right, right, right. Um, but this idea that, like, the, you know, whether it's, you know, Lords or whether it's, uh, if we're going to look at Martin Luther King Jr. in Let- Letter from a Birmingham Jail, where he talks about all of us being part of a seamless garment, like knitted together, right? And so uh, selective liberation looks like me growing up as a white woman coming into my own in my early 20s and realizing, like, oh, my gosh, like, women are oppressed, this needs to stop. And if I had only focused on that and when I was only focusing on that, it got kind of toxic and mm-hmm. kind of shitty. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can cuss on your podcast or not. But Occasionally. It's happened from time to time. Cool. I will try <laughs> to continue to not use those words, but sometimes it slips. Um, sometimes they're the best they're words the best in contents. Words. <laughs> yep. Just enough to not uh, get us the E. At so many freedom movements. You can look at the early suffragists who were looking for the right for women to vote and they neglected the black and Latinx and native women among them. Uh, Bad things happen when we only look for our own freedom. Um, You know, you could argue that the insurrection at the Capitol was a group of people looking for their own freedom at the cost of ignoring everybody else. And so I think in the church, we have done that looking at spiritual freedom and like a purely spiritual faith, which that concept emerged like during the Reconstruction when all these people were trying to like form theologies that allowed them to still oppress uh, formerly enslaved people. So that's real fun. We shouldn't really talk about purely spiritual faith with any sort of like moral authority because that's just not the roots of it. Um, And so to say that our, our faith only speaks to a spiritual liberation and only for people like me just leads us down some really dangerous paths uh, because that's not how Jesus operates. That's not how the Holy Spirit operates. Um, and if we look at, you know, even like political histories or, or social movements, it doesn't lead to good places there either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved how you, um, I think it's chapter three, Connection Over Consumption, um, detailed how white our religious world is, particularly is just white Protestants, let's say. Let's just say that. Uh, we're, I'm completely unaware of how I've been programmed to live in a white religion that's been programmed by white people, that's been uh, given to white people, that's been made for white people. And then I wonder why my church isn't diverse, right? Mm-hmm. Or why, why I can't understand the way uh, some black people worship or Latinx people worship or LGBTQ people, fill in the blank, that was so fun to have that that fleece pulled back and re- realize this is really white right here, what we're dealing with. And we, we transpose that onto the scriptures and we transpose that onto God, God, him or herself. And it's amazing how limited we are in under- understanding because of our cultural experience. It's not our fault, really. I mean, when it's our fault is when we actually say, no, that's not the case. This is the way things really are, right? But what what ex- what pulled back the fleece for you, Megan, and seeing how, just how white of a religious world you grew up in? 
Uh, in the book, I talk through one of those watershed moments for me because it was many, right? Just like uh, just like salvation, I think that this realization uh, of one's own social location um, and the space that you occupy in the world, especially if you're coming from a majority or dominant culture, um, it's a series of events <laughs> that unfold over time. But one of them that I talk about in the book is watching President Obama's inauguration uh, in 2008. And I was still very much like a card-carrying evangelical Republican at that point. Uh, I was working at an after-school program, and the majority of the staff and the majority of the students were African-American. And we watched a replay of the inauguration that day uh, while the kids were at after school. And I was annoyed. Like, I'm just going to, like, own the space I was in at that time. I thought it was a terrible idea. I was like, these kids are not going to sit there and watch this big ceremony. Like, this is such a bad idea. I worked with a first grade class that year. And I was just like, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to have seven-year-olds just losing their minds for however long this takes. And I was wrong. And we sat in the auditorium, and my students and my coworkers were crying mm-hmm. and cheering. And it was this moment where I realized for the first time, um, I think that's part of the way we can kind of gauge our privilege, is like when was the first time you realized that something was going on that you weren't an insider on? Um, and for me, I was 20. And I, I realized, like, something is happening, and I don't know what it is. Um, and that was kind of the first moment where I started to, to kind of dig. I had a theology professor that same year who had me read James Cone at my Baptist college. God bless that man. And wow. um, uh, so then it was just a series of things after that. You know, when we moved to Milwaukee, uh, the whole time that I've lived here, I've lived in predominantly black neighborhoods. That has revealed more uh, in my life than many, many things. Just living among people and living in a neighborhood where my neighbors don't look like me. Um, and don't have the same life experiences that I have, uh, that when a police officer pulls them over in our neighborhood, do not have the same interaction with that officer that I do. Um, and so it, it's been a series of unlearning. I talk in the book, too, about unlearning and returning. Um, and I'm still in that process of, of realizing uh, what I'm missing and what are my assumptions about the world and what am I imposing onto God and my neighbor and myself that isn't rooted in who God has created us all to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. We could spend a lot of time there. Also in chapter two, you're speaking of being connected to to people, being connected to people as family, being connected to people and learning from one another. And you talk about the disciples as a model, which you're not the first to do, but it's um, striking in this time-space moment we find ourselves in right now, right? Where you articulate how Jesus has politically opposite folks as part of his disciples, as part of his innermost circle, a zealot who's a complete liberal and a tax collector who's a complete ultra-conservative, and they're still following Jesus. And you say how that must have been some fascinating dinner conversation, right? Totally agree with you. I wish I was a fly on the wall. But that kind of runs against something that we're starting to hear in our culture. And I even remember hearing, reading on Twitter, you posted on election day this past, you know, a couple months ago about how basically 
there are some people that we disagree with that there are our values are so off center with one another that it might be actually better to part ways with that person. That might be the best choice. I understand that fully. And I think especially for oppressed people, that's, that's, that's the reality and that that's wisdom. Um, but it's also hard for me to differentiate between living in an echo chamber where I surround myself with myself with people that I just agree with and who agree with me, because that's more and more of what we're seeing rather than saying, even if you disagree with me on something that I hold really important, I'm still going to hold space with you and listen to you and love you. Um, how do you how do you hold all of that intention, Megan? Yeah, I, I think that your your note that you know, particularly for oppressed people, this is something that you need to do. Right when I wrote my book, I was writing for people coming from the same space I did. So white evangelicals, or maybe I'm not evangelical anymore. I don't really know, uh, you know, people coming from that space. Uh, and so I, I will answer from that space too, um, that for people who are white, for people who are in dominant culture, for people who are, um, in majority culture, however we want to phrase that, uh, there is both a responsibility to be like the, the landing place for folks but in our responsibility to continue to hold space for people, uh, we need to continue to occupy the space that we hold too. And I think that sometimes when we are holding space for people, when I have held space for people I have disagreed with, and maybe part of this is just that I you know, grew up in the South and there's a whole lot of just like Southern nicety. Uh, but mm-hmm. Midwesterners are bad at this too, though, mm-hmm. of just kind of shoving what, what you disagree with down. And if somebody's saying something that you disagree with, you're like, okay, and that's not <laughs> holding space. Mm-hmm. That's not bringing both the zealot and the tax collector to the table. That is the zealot going off and the tax collector just like biting the inside of his cheek until it bleeds. And that's not relationship and that's not coming together. And so I think that if we are truly going to hold more space for one another, we're going to have a lot more conflict in our relationships, but that that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That when we are in conflict with one another, if I'm angry at you and you know it, it's because I trust you enough to like trust you with that big emotion that I'm feeling. What we have a problem with is indifference and choosing to coexist alongside people that we are indifferent to and then retreat back to our own echo chambers and then come together with people that we are indifferent with. Um, and that's what I want us to try to avoid. The other thing I will say on this that like has gotten really complicated in the last year is I think there's a lot of space to disagree on how we go about fixing problems or how we go about navigating things we disagree about as far as like, you know, should, uh, teachers or grocery store workers get vaccinated first Mm -hmm. you know should uh should we have spaghetti or pizza for dinner right things like that uh if we are disagreeing on things that are observable facts then there needs to be less space for that um because good things don't come from that nothing creative comes from that no good innovative solutions come from that because all we're doing is circling around like is it my version of reality or your version of reality that we're going to try to fix um and i think that we can get really uh bogged down in trying to hold space for for people or for viewpoints that it's just like this is just not something that helps us move forward in any way 
Um, and it doesn't help bring flourishing or freedom or hope for anyone. And, and I don't think that the zealots or the tax collectors would be bringing that to the table. So quick follow-up. So when you use phrases like hold space for someone or occupy the space that you're in, can you flesh that out a little bit? Would, would that be analogous to um, just continuing a dialogue or what, what specifically do you envision when you use phrases like that? I think continuing a dialogue or continuing in relationship. Um, I think that it looks different for different people and at different points in their journey. To hold space for someone that you're in sharp disagreement with may look like, hey, we can continue to talk once a month with these specific parameters for this amount of time. And that's mm -hmm. it. Uh, you know, in the conflict mediation work that I've done, you might even agree to those parameters ahead of time and say, hey, this is really hard right now. And I'm having a difficult time staying in relationship with you, but I want to. So here's what we need to do. Right. And, and can you agree to this? Can we do we both value this relationship enough that this is what we're going to do? Um, you know, I think that if it's in a, a bigger setting, um, it can just look like digging in and asking questions instead of uh, presuming judgments. I went to seminary with somebody who reminded me a whole lot of people that I grew up with. <laughs> And, and that was not a good thing. By the time I got to seminary, I was like, oh, no, not this person. And uh, we happened to both be from the same home state, uh, West Virginia, which automatically meant that they were like, oh, hey, let's talk. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to. I came here to get away right. from you. <laughs> and instead of deciding that I was just going to like totally shut down, block this, this person off, in all ways, uh, they would make pronouncements, and they were much more conservative than I was. Um, they would make pronouncements before or, or during class, and during breaks or after class, I'd be like, hey, can you, can you tell me more about why you think that solves this problem? Can you explain to me more about why you think this theology is helpful for the church right now? And we would go back and forth, and after, you know, after he would share with me, then he would usually return the question. Um, to be like, well, well, how do you see this? And that really helped cultivate a healthy, respectful dialogue. Again, we weren't disagreeing on like facts, um, mm -hmm. but it was, it was, hey, we have two different ways of looking at how this plays out in the church and in the world. And I got better. My ideas got better and sharper and more nuanced and, more clear the more I talked to him. And I think the same was true for him the more he talked with me. Um, and so I think that it, it really depends on the situation that people are in and the context in which they're trying to keep showing up for other people. But uh, that work is important and it's worth the energy. How about that? When you engage with somebody asking honest questions in a humble fashion, wanting to genuinely know that what they think, things tend to work out. How about that? But you know, it's it's kind of like uh, in youth group drama camps <laughs> and stuff when you just when you're doing the improv exercises and you say yes and uh -huh. <laughs> uh, it, it's a good guidepost in, in all of life. I get the chills when I like actually go back to those youth group skits, <laughs> like in bad chills, like like not good chills. Yeah, yeah, no, no, lots of bad chills. But the improv, ex the yes and is is the thing we can take. That's the kernel of truth that we can good, take with good. us. Yeah. 
the one thing, one of the only things that I've kept from my old like street evangelism days, which I really identified with certain parts of your book because of that, uh, was the the question, why do you think that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why do you believe that? Tell me more. It's so productive. It's a great question. Yeah. So your book has several chapters in it that I got to be honest, I didn't expect to be in it when I looked at the cover. <laughs> Uh, So there's a chapter on politics, there's a chapter on racism, there's a chapter on personal finances, there's a chapter on environmentalism, there's a chapter on gender, uh, in a book, presumably, uh, about salvation. So connect those dots for for the listeners, if if you can. Why did you pick those topics to be in a book called Born Again and Again? I was trying to choose the least controversial topics that I could (laughs) talk about in the church. And that just seemed like the list. Um, you know, I think that if our salvation is to mean anything, then it has to have implications in our day-to-day life. I think that if our faith has any sort of value, then it has to be embodied in some way. And so I wanted to go through some of the most difficult uh, kind of sectors of life that we navigate and say, this is what that can look like. Because I think that it's easy uh, for me to write a chapter like chapter two or chapter three and like connection over consumption and we should be together. And I quote Moana and I'm like, the people you love will change you. And that sounds really, really good. And then you actually get around people and you're like, I don't want to change like that. Don't change me that way. And so I looked at different topics that either had been kind of flashpoints in my own life for, you know, moments where you know, looking back, I can be like, oh, that was really where my theology shook loose, uh, race, gender. Um, this past year, you know, it, going back through the environment chapter now uh, is really interesting because I have spent so much more time outside this past year. Um, and I'm like, oh, there's, I, I would write even more on that now if I was writing it all over again. Uh Money is a is a thing that always is tripping us up. And what do you do with your money? And how do you manage your money? And everybody's in tons of debt. Um, at least uh, people in my generation. I'm a millennial, so um, what do we do with that? And what does faithfulness look like um, that maybe doesn't look like you know debt is dumb and cash is king and angry white men on the mm-hmm. radio? Um, that was that was Dave Ramsey. It was, right? it was, it was yeah, it was Dave Ramsey. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, That's what I thought. Yeah, and so I I tried to choose topics that were like the tough case studies, right? Where like if we were having this conversation in real life, that somebody would raise their hand and say, yeah, but what about? I tried to kind of say like, okay, but this and this and this. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's not complete. Like I said, I was trying to write a book that would be like footholds on a rock wall. Um, But hopefully there's enough there that people can push off into, into more questions as they come up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I want to say that is such a better way to hold and to think of our salvation. That salvation isn't a membership card into this exclusive club. Salvation isn't, like you said, a trophy or trinket to put on, a, on, our, you know, on our mantle for people to look at and for us to brag on a little bit. Salvation is messy and it's a process and it's dirty and nitty gritty, and it's beautiful all at the same time, and it affects all of our lives. And if it doesn't, we got to wonder if we've got this trinket kind of salvation that really doesn't, doesn't account for much in our daily lives. I like that. 
Yeah. Uh, so one more question about racism, but really it could be bigger than that. We could expand it to other forms of social stratification as well. Um, so you talk in Chapter 5 a little bit about the attempt by a lot of white churches to develop a more diverse, putting that in scare quotes for those who can't see me, diverse congregation. And it reminded me of reading Ibram Kendi's book last year, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and he talks about this too, and kind of comes down on the side, somewhat surprisingly at the time for me, on uh, the segregation that happens on Sunday mornings is not entirely a bad thing. Uh, and that there's actually some some necessary healing that's allowed in those spaces that wouldn't be allowed if we were forcing the reintegration. Uh, so what's your view of this? How do we, we, everybody in this conversation, well, at least uh, Randy and I and Elliot for sure, uh, attend predominantly white churches and spend most of our time in predominantly white spaces, how do we approach this? Because we want diversity. Diversity is a good thing, Right. Uh, we want to give positions of decision-making authority to people of color. That's a good thing. It would grow all of us if we did that. And yet, we're hearing from people in those spaces that maybe that's not what they want. <laughs> so so what, what's your take on this? I think that white people need to do their own work first uh, before we try to do any sort of diversity work we need to take a really long, hard look at ourselves. Uh, and I don't trust any white people to do any sort of diversity work if they're also not willing to say in the same breath that they're racist. Um, I would freely acknowledge that. But like, I am a racist, a recovering one. Um, but just like a addict of any sort who's in recovery would never say, like, oh, I'm... I, I'm not an addict anymore. Like you'd be like, maybe you need to go back to that 12 steps meeting. <laughs> like maybe, maybe you need to go back for a refresher. Uh, whiteness is similar to an addiction to power and an addiction to a view of self that is uh, inflated and diminished at the same time. We both over inflate our station in the world and what we can and cannot do. Willie Jennings' latest book, After Whiteness, talks about this. Um, and like the, the plantation mindset, plantation pedagogy, I think is what he calls it. Um, but it's been a little bit. So if you read that book and it's not that exact phrase, <laughs> then my memory is a little foggy. But It's a great phrase. Yeah, so right. somebody I, should I use it. I think that's what he calls it. Um, so but this idea that like at the same time we are – presuming we have so much mastery and control over the world. And because that doesn't actually exist, because that is a figment of our own imaginations and our own creation, it diminishes our humanity because we're trying to live outside of the space that we are actually created to be within. And so, uh, you know, we don't ever completely get over that. Uh, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how many books I read, no matter how many people of color who I uh, submit to their leadership, I'm never going to be completely over that. And so I think that white people need to do that work uh, to begin with themselves. Um, and Kendi's book is great. There's, I mean, after this past summer, there's lists all over the Internet of books people can read. Yeah. Uh, but not just reading the, the books on racial equity, but also reading fiction and reading poetry. Like, my God, yesterday we saw this incredible young black poet just 
take us all to church and leave us weeping at the <laughs> altar. Um, or maybe that was just in my living room, but it was it was very good. I don't think so. <laughs> for, for the listener, for for in case whenever this airs, she's referring to the. Uh, poet laureate at the inauguration. Um, yes, Amanda Gorman. Amanda Amanda Gorman. Yeah. Right, yeah. My friend texted me while she was speaking just the the phrase. This is an exorcism. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I thought. Hmm, yeah. I think it is. And so <laughs> reading black poets, poets of color, reading uh, N. K. Jemison and Octavia Butler and. Uh, Tony Morrison, and letting not just our imaginations of power structures be redeemed and restored, but also just our imagination of like, how do we create worlds in our mind be liberated from from whiteness too? And so I think that's the first thing. Um, and then I would also say that if there's a, if there are white Christians who really really want diversity in their spiritual life, you can go to a black church. Like, do your own work first. Like, don't just show up with all your racism and, like, decide that you're going to take over black. No, 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 that's not what I'm advocating for. But if you, like, are doing your work and you do your discernment and you go and you sit in the pews and you don't, there's zero critical feedback. Nope, you sit down, you listen, you, you learn, you take it in, you let your mind be reshaped and reformed. I think you can do that. Um, and, and maybe you volunteer to shovel the snow, um, but you're not leading stuff. Um, I think that for many, many years, uh, I approached ministry trying to cultivate diversity by saying, oh, look, I've done all this work. Please come to me. And I think that there's still a lot of whiteness wrapped up in that idea that I'm going to uh, give you the mic when there are people of color who have mics in their own corners and we're just not listening to them. Some people listening might, might listen to you and say, man, you're going a little bit far, right? Like I got in trouble in a sermon for say, with a few people for saying we're all a little bit racist, at least. Um, that's a sensitive thing for some people, particularly for, for some white people. And some people might be listening, being like, oh, man, like, do I really have to apologize that much for being white? You know, is that what we're talking about here? Um, I'm sure you've had that conversation multiple times, just a little bit. Take us into that, like, answer that question from our listener who might be thinking that generally think that apologizing for being white is not helpful. Um, most people are not looking for your, for an apology for being white. Um, there's an expression, white lady tears, um, where you'll have a, a woman in particular, but men cry too, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, our non-binary siblings cry too. Um, that, uh, you know, you're crying and then you're trying to subconsciously even get a response of sympathy like oh no no you're not that bad it's it's okay uh, which then puts the burden of that interaction back on the person of color um and so i think that generally i have learned to view that feeling of fragility or that feeling of like oh i i I don't think so. Mm-mm. No, Randy, I think you're off there when you said it. We're all a little bit racist. That mm, I don't. I don't think that doesn't sit right in my spirit. You know, like that. <laughs> that doesn't feel like it's from the Lord. <laughs> um, I have started to view that feeling as an invitation from the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and the moments when I'm being corrected, particularly from somebody that I have otherwise trusted and otherwise respected their work, um, to view that correction as a gift. 
like, oh, what am I not seeing about myself? What am I not aware of within my life that this person is seeing right now? And they are giving me the gift of their viewpoint. They're giving me the gift of their eyes and their ears and, and you know, the way that this is all hitting them right now. And like, what a precious opportunity to engage in that and to sit with that. And so I think that there needs to be a lot less urgency to fix it. That's another way that whiteness tends to operate is there's a lot of like, well, we just need to fix it. Like, what do I need to do to make it go away? Instead of saying like, this is 400 some odd years in the making, racial hierarchy. Um, And so it's not going to be fixed in this one apology or statement that I issue, Um, that this is going to take 400 some odd years to free ourselves from. And so to embrace the discomfort of that, of knowing that this is a work that will be unfinished when I die, regardless of whether or not I apologize to you today. But I do have a responsibility for the way that I react and the way that I navigate systems, and particularly systems where people really value what I say. Um, And I'm responsible for what jokes that I laugh at or let go unchecked in my presence. Um, I'm responsible for the policies that the people I vote for run on and enact. Um, And those are things that I can change and I can shift. And those are things that don't require a apology, um, but they just require a different set of actions. And there are places too, for sure, where repentance is in order, not to just like throw all the churchy words out there, like salvation and repentance, but apologizing and repenting are not the same thing. Um, and, and so there's a real difference in saying like, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry for being white uh, versus that feedback you just gave me, what you just told me about myself has shown me something different, and I'm going to walk a different way after this moment because of what you shared with me. Theology in everyday practice. How about that? So in most of the Christian spaces I'm in, I'm the most liberal person in the room. I'm guessing that may not be the case at this moment. So I want to ask ask this to a fellow liberal Christian, Um, especially one that wrote a book about salvation. I haven't thought of Christianity in terms of salvation in more than a decade. Probably, it's if I if I were asked by some like some legitimately genuinely secular person to explain Christianity to them, the concept probably wouldn't be a part of my introduction. To be honest, uh, and and I would I would probably expect that I would need to explain it away if it did come up. Uh, I don't any longer really think of Christianity in those terms, and I don't see it as a particularly helpful way of explaining what I think the core of the religion is. So. Do you really think that? Because in some ways, I think I feel like your your book is kind of aimed at um, other people on the road to a more progressive form of Christianity. Uh, and in my experience, that took me away from the concept of salvation altogether. So I'm just curious what your take on that is. How many progressive or liberal Christians do you think really really think in those terms anymore? A lot of them, it seems to me, think of being born again as a I don't know, almost a cliche, something that calls to mind a a form of evangelicalism we left behind a long time ago. Yeah, for sure. 
I, uh, I, I mean, I was writing for the people that are on that journey um, and trying to really think through where am I trying to meet people um, and how do we, how do I kind of like hold their hand and walk with them <laughs> along the road. Uh, and I did not pick the title of my book, um, although it is good. Um, I think that Born Again is a huge cliche. And gosh, I know that there are things in my life that I'm not in power to control them, right? That I am powerless over, right? Like, gosh, I know that. And so if I think of salvation in those terms of there are powers and principalities, if you will, or there are mindsets and uh, thought processes that were handed down to me, from my parents and my grandparents and my ancestors that I don't even know how to begin to untangle. Um, I am comfortable at this point of saying like, yeah, I need to be saved from those things. Like I need, I need some sort of intervention there. I need some sort of uh, assistance <laughs> from, from the spirit um, to, to guide me through that. Um, I need to know that life comes out of the grave. Um, I need to know that a resurrected body still bears scars and that there's still an invitation to walk in faithfulness uh, despite of and because of all of those things. Um, and so I would say I still hold to a, an understanding of salvation as important um, that's part of why I wrote a book on it. The, the first season of my podcast is all about what does it mean to be saved? Because I do think it's still important, but in a very, very different way than I, how I used to think about it. Salvation in that all of creation is being redeemed, and how do I participate in that? That'll preach. <laughs> so one unique or maybe um, at least unusual thing about the book was that you pepper in each chapter uh, little stories from other people, people from your life that you know. Uh, to illustrate the points that you're making in the book. And they're really compelling. They're, some of my favorite parts of the book were those those little vignettes. Uh, did you write those? Were those written by the people actually themselves? They were. Some of them, they were, some of them were quite well written. Right? I, they were <laughs> written by all of those people, um, all my friends. And I did. I read some of them and I was like, also, I hope you get a book deal next because this is really good. <laughs> yeah. So why did you choose to to write it that way, to include other perspectives? Like it was that? really important to me to illustrate, even in the structure of the book, this idea of connection over consumption, right? This idea that, like, I don't come to the place I am in my life or in my understanding of God or the world because I have lots of good ideas. And wow, isn't Megan Westra super? Um, and she's so smart. And it's like, no, I came to these conclusions. I am who I am now, to, to quote uh, Dr. Cornell West, I am who I am because somebody loved me. And multiple people loved me. And then some of them even said, sure, I'll write a thing for your book. Um, and so, you know, I included the voices of people who have been formative for me in one way or another, uh, who were willing to go along with this, you know, kind of odd idea of, hey, will you write a 300 to 500 word vignette for my book? Um, but I wanted to really illustrate, even in the structure, that like, you know, the way forward is through listening humbly and letting yourself be formed by the voices of others and and that the people you love will change you 
um, and they will change the way you think about God and about the world and about yourself. And it will be a more beautiful thing because of that. Yeah. One of the people that, uh, who's, uh, whose writing really challenged me was a pastor of a church called Tippecanoe Presbyterian. He called her Pastor Karen. And um, it was in the context of talking about the distinction between stewardship and ownership, seeing yourself, seeing your own possessions as something that really belongs to God and belongs to the world and uh, not something to be hoarded. And uh, she was describing how they had taken the grounds around their church and actually turned them into a garden that they would open up to the community and help feed people. And at one point she said, it's not about this church. These ministries don't belong to this church. And it struck me because I don't, I don't see my own projects that way. I have, I have a hard time sharing this podcast with Randy. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I certainly don't, don't view my own possessions in that way. So how can we get better at that? <laughs> well, I had, the, I had the same reaction when I was talking with her. That was the one. Everybody wrote their own vignettes except for that one. I interviewed her and then typed up the, the interview. Mm. Um, and even as we were talking, I was like, dang, I don't. Okay. <laughs> Um, and that church is in, it's local, it's in Bayview. You can drive down and see the, see the gardens. It's quite the, uh, the operation. It's pretty cool. Um, I think it's one of those things you get better by, by doing it. Uh, it like riding a bike, you don't just like will yourself into being a more generous and, uh, open hearted person, uh, you know, oriented to the world in a way that is is in some ways like very much rooted in particularly like the Hebrew Bible, um, this idea that the the earth is the the Lord's um, and not ours, and we don't permanently own anything. Uh, everything goes back uh, every forty years, right? Like the whole concept of jubilee, um, which is really really opposite to how we think about anything in the United States, um, where it's like this has been in my family for. 200 years and we're just going to keep passing it down. So it's challenging for us. But I think that in in small ways, you know, whatever that looks like for people, and it's hard right now during the pandemic because so many of the things when I think about how did I kind of start reshaping that? Well, the first 10 years that I lived in Milwaukee, I lived in a duplex and it was kind of considered common space for both the church that I was working for at the time and also the kids in the neighborhood who we were trying to minister to. And so there were just people in and out all the time. And there were kids on my porch from in the summer from like 8 a.m. until 9 o'clock at night sometimes. And it was very formative to really like this is this is my home. And it's not just my home. It is a home. And it is a safe place, and it's a it's a space where people feel and find belonging, and a snack, and sidewalk talk, whatever, right? And that's not just for me; that's for everybody. But right now, it's not exactly advisable to say like just have an open door policy to your house. So I think that there's there's certain challenges in this moment. But even the idea of how do we think about our public health measures, and is this just so that I feel more confident about my own health, right? I'm halfway vaccinated right now as a health professional. Um, Jealous. Working in the chaplain settings that I work in, but that's not just for me. That's for my patients and it's for their families and it's for um, all of these things. And so I think, you know, even catching ourselves when we're doing that self-reflection work 
if we're keeping a gratitude journal or whatever, that we're not just thinking in terms of this is how this benefits me, but then challenging ourselves to think, does this have a benefit to my neighbors? And if so, what is it? And if it doesn't, how could I hold it differently so that it benefits more than just me? How do I make this a channel of blessing and not a well that just sinks down? Mm-hmm. So Megan, in your in the second to last chapter, I I mean you got me basically. Like you you slayed me telling your story of growing up in the church as a as a young woman. Um, and I think if I would have one critique with the book, Megan, it was that that second to last chapter was so good. I wanted one whole chapter on gender and on women in the church, and I wanted one whole chapter on sexuality. Yeah. Um, so there's there's my there's my little little beef. I wanted more from you, basically. But um, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm just gonna read this. Y- you telling your story of growing up in the church built some rage in me and it actually brought me into your story a little bit and helped me empathize a little bit with what it what it felt like and what it feels like for women in the church and young women in the church in particular. So you say, this is on page 128, I have always had the spirit of a leader and an entrepreneur, a spirit that often in my grow, growing up years got me labeled as a Jezebel. That's a Southern thing. I don't know about that. That's my commentary. When it came to matters of faith, I quickly internalized the conclusion that these impulses to create, dream, and lead were problems and not gifts. I prayed for hours that God would give me the gentle and quiet spirit that good Christian girls were supposed to have. Yet my big ideas, opinions, and dreams continually disrupted my attempts to become quiet and serene. I'm going to go on. The waves of Me Too and Church Too, survivor accounts, resurrected familiar feelings in my body. Prickling shivers rushed from head to toe and twisted my belly into knots. They were as familiar as the pounding of my heartbeat that I remember from my years as a middle schooler and high schooler when church leaders would pull me aside on a regular basis to tell me that I was causing boys to stumble or that I was being too much, quote-unquote. I didn't know at the time how to name those feelings as shame and a response to manipulation. Instead, I accepted the responsibility of protecting the boys around me from temptation and tried to shrink myself to fit the ideals presented to me. I feverishly wrote out a personal list of do's and don'ts for my wardrobe and my journal. I learned to hate my body. I convinced myself that policing it was a form of love. I learned to hate my voice, to see my brains and ambition as a liability. I knew that no amount of praying and asking friends to hold me accountable was going to produce the quote-unquote gentle and quiet spirit that a true woman of God should possess. But if I disparaged myself as I spoke up, perhaps I would at least signal that I was trying. That right there is an indictment. Bring us into that world. What was it like to live in that world and to feel like you had to be an imposter, even though you've been created to be a certain way? I think that I wouldn't have even called it an imposter because labeling yourself as an imposter implies that you know that you have a different identity, a different uh, solid self outside of that. And I thought I was defective. Uh, which is mm. different than imposter. Um, I thought that that was my sin, you know, particularly in that circle. It was my sin that was still holding a grip on me, that it was 
um, Satan who was uh, stirring these things up for me and, you know, making it so impossible for me to just be quiet and meek and modest and um, have less opinions. I've never, I've never really been good at any of that. And I just assumed that it meant that I was flawed. Uh, and that there would be a certain measure of faithfulness that would never be accessible to me because of that. Uh, there was also a, a big lie in in the circles I grew up in, and I don't think I talk about this in the book, but this idea of like a switch would flip when I got married or when I had a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, well, when you do these things that make you really a woman – then a switch will flip and you'll just want all these other, you'll want to be quiet and you'll want to be in your home and be mm-hmm. the, the homemaker and you'll cook and clean and whatever. And I do like to cook in part because I like to eat good food. Um, <laughs> but the switch never flipped. <laughs> there was never a switch. Uh, if anything, I, I had my daughter and all of a sudden was like, oh, shoot, now I have another girl. <laughs> I have to figure out how to teach her to navigate the world. So I better figure this out. Um, so I, you know, I had a big blog post that got pretty big when blogging was still popular um, about how motherhood made me into a feminist. Um, so I, I don't know how to exactly bring you into the world any more than than what I wrote. I think that that's part of the reason why uh, it is so important for people who have one lived experience to really approach people with different lived experiences with utmost humility and respect for that. And that if somebody is sharing, this is what I have gone through. And, you know, if you continue going through that chapter, you read a vignette from uh, a friend of mine who is single and a friend who is uh, gay and celibate and a friend who is trans and a friend who, right? And so like all of these different lived experiences are so important um, to listen to with the utmost humility and just the deepest amount of of the sacredness of that because I will never know what those experiences are like. And so if I'm going to walk in a way that demonstrates love for my neighbors who have those lived experiences, then I need to understand that I'm never going to get the whole depth of it. I'm never going to master my understanding of, of what they've lived through um, any more than anybody would, would master their understanding of what I've been through as a woman in the church. But I think it, it compels me to listen carefully and humbly to others and it compels me to make sure that we're making shifts so that we stop causing harm um and and i'm encouraged sometimes like uh, i have a, a sticker on my laptop that's from uh the happy givers um and it says something about like Jesus loved women and protected women and listened to women and lists all these things that Jesus did. And then at the, at the bottom it says, our turn. And I was like, yeah, good feminist Christian sticker. Yeah. And my daughter, who was almost nine, saw it. Like, this was like last year when I first got it. And she was like reading it. And I could tell, you know, her eyes get all squinty. And she's like reading it through. And she's like, yeah. 
<laughs> and just like it was just like not even a thing. And so then we had a conversation. She's like, why did you put that stupid sticker on your laptop? Like, why do you why does that need to be said? And so then we had a conversation about it. And I was like, well, this is how I grew up. And and this is what I learned. And she got so I mean, her little fist balled up and she started shaking and uh and and just this visible, right, like whole body rage of just like, no. And so in those moments, I feel hope because I'm just like, oh, I have only thought this as long as she's been alive. And she already is getting a different story about what it means. And what other stories could we just say, you know what, that story's done. We're not telling that one anymore. If there were more of us willing to, kind of going back to what I said earlier about leadership, willing to just say, no, we're going to break that right here. We're not going to massage around the edges. We're not going to talk about how, okay, well, in some instances, God calls Deborah, but usually it needs to be a man. You know, we're just going to break it right here. Um, Because how much more quickly can we tell a different story when we're willing to do that? Stories equal power. I mean, it's easy to have a theology that's nice and neat and tight and, you know, you have your list of Bible verses that can corroborate said theology, and then you just hear somebody's story. Then you hear what that theology produced and what happened. You could have even easily been a gay or lesbian man or woman who had those same exact conversations with their youth group leaders and had to suppress certain things. And it's easy for us to have these pet verses and to have these theological claims. And then you just start listening to people. And it's not only that a lot of that theology starts crumbling, or it's not that like your, your view of scripture has to change. It's just that you start seeing different scriptures even, right? I mean, it's not, I wouldn't advocate for anybody giving up scripture because it doesn't work. I would just say we're not seeing the right scriptures and that stuff is there in plain sight, but it's kind of hiding because we haven't been taught to see it right. Um, this stuff is Christ-like all the way through from beginning to end, what we're talking about. Liberation, not selective liberation, but the whole beautiful full deal. Well done, Megan. I loved it. Thank you. Are you working on anything now? Do you have anything in your brain or in your computer hard drive that's uh, developing? I do. I have a few things that are in my computer hard drive and in my brain. This year has not been great for having time to work on creative pet projects, Um, but there are some out there. If people are interested in following along and finding out what I'm working on, like you said, Twitter is a great place for that. Um, My website is good, too. Um, and so we'll see. I, I really think that uh, like spiritual formation is still really, really important to me, which is weird for a liberal Christian or a progressive Christian, uh, neither of which are like labels that I love, but that seems to be the, the space that people like to land me in. Just own it. It's okay. It doesn't sound as bad. As <laughs> it's more like I know too much about church history and theology. I'm like, well, actually, there's this person that was writing things like a thousand years ago that are pretty close to what I'm saying. So it's not really progressive. Yep. It's pretty old. But then at, by that point, their eyes just kind of glaze over and they right. don't want to hear anything about like obscure people that were writing in Greece or Ethiopia. Totally. It's fine. We um, can call it progressive theology as long as it's ancient as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so uh, 
I think that spiritual formation is really, really important. And most of the things that I kind of have like humming around in the back of my mind or what does it look like for there to be like daily spiritual practices or like small practices that people who aren't necessarily looking for like the sit down and spend 15 minutes in your Bible and praying kind of quiet time model, but still want some sort of like daily grounding practice. Like what are ways that we can think about those things? Um, and, and kind of writing about that more. There's lots of things that are written on that already, but I could add my voice to the, to the chorus there. Do it. Um, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see what we come up with, but Uh, There are certainly things kind of bouncing around in my brain. Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please rate and review the podcast before you close your app. You can also share the episode with friends or family members with the links from our social media pages. Gain inside access, extra perks, and more at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. We're so grateful for your support of the podcast. Until next time, this has been a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar. Mm-hmm.